Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called Navigating Shame with Erica Nordfelt, Part 1. Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I've got a very special guest today. I'm excited for her to share her experience working for BYU-Idaho in the counseling department. Let's bring her on. Her name is Erica Nordfelt. She worked for BYU in the BYU-Idaho counseling department for seven years. And after her time with BYU-Idaho, she now is the co-founder and co-owner of Greenstone Counseling based in Rexburg, Idaho. So without further ado, Erica, welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Thanks so much. I'm super stoked to be here. Really, really excited. I've kind of, it's like been Christmas getting ready to like, oh, yay. I'm just, I don't know. I love talking about this stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of like a little giddy kid right now. <laughs> well, I've been excited to bring you on. I know the longtime listeners, they'll know that I, that I have struggled with some mental health things in my life. And I've mentioned it on occasion in the podcast. And so I'm so excited to bring you on as a mental health care professional that worked for the church or for one of the institutions of the church, and then uh, now professionally helps those in very similar situations that many of the listeners find themselves in. So I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. Awesome. So as we jump into things, um, I want to give you as much or as little time to kind of tell your Mormon story, if you will, you know, where did you grow up? You know, what was, what was your life like? What brought you to the point where you started working for BYU-Idaho? And then kind of briefly, maybe some like overall thoughts about working for the counseling department or working for the, the institution. And then we'll go from there. It's funny. I know you ask all your hosts or all the interviewees this question and it's like, oh, it's so hard to know how much, not that I'm shy. I'm not at all shy, <laughs> but I don't want to take up the whole episode just telling my story because this is not just about my story, but it's relevant and it's relevant to my experience, especially with where we're going to go and, and discuss more kind of the intersection of shame and LDS doctrine and mental health. But so I grew up in, I was born and raised in Durango, Colorado. Very, very, um, classic Orthodox LDS family, even though actually Durango is very, um, has a very low population of LDS people. Um, we only had two wards and they never changed. And so it's like, we didn't get a whole lot of missionary work coming in or out, but grew up in a, in, in a very classic family that we were very active, active all my life. My parents, well, and most of my family still is. And so I graduated high school. Um, came to BYU-Idaho. And, and when I say, like, to give context, I know that there's a lot of variation in how families, how maybe rigid or not they are. Like, we were, we were very attending and observing in all the ways, but we weren't the family that maybe worked church clothes all Sunday. Okay. <laughs> you know? And so there was a little bit of flexibility, as maybe not super, super rigid, which for me, I think was helpful and we grew up in a in a very diverse community, and so it helped me to, I think, interact and integrate into 
you know, with all my friends, none of them were members. And so I was able to develop a lot of meaningful relationships. And that probably shifted just my perspective of non-members a lot because I loved a lot of non-member people and they loved me and I just had... So R-rated movies or no R-rated movies? No R-rated movies. Actually, my dad would on occasion hide and he would go watch them. Still does, <laughs> which is funny. But um, no, that 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 one was more observed. Didn't really do caffeine, but maybe a little bit. But it wasn't like shamed. Um, and actually... Like a can of Coke caffeine, but not coffee caffeine? Yes, yes. Yep, yep, totally. But coming to BYU-Idaho for me was kind of a huge, I remember we went, it was just me and my mom and we were going to the registrar's department and I don't know, doing whatever. And they're like, go see sister so-and-so. And I was like, oh, sister so-and-so, they call each other. And it was for me at that time, really meaningful that, oh my gosh, we're all brothers and sisters. And, and so that was really exciting for me to be around. Cause I hadn't been around a lot of active LDS people. And so that played out. Um, I was, I mean, I'm going to abbreviate, met my husband, had lots of callings. Like I've been in every, every presidency auxiliary, um, and president of most except for primary, but I was in a primary presidency over that time. I was an EFY speaker. I was an EFY counselor. Like I was as in, in it as I was in it to win it. And so that just gives context of like how, how very active I was. And I don't look back on that with any ill intent. Like I don't regret any of those years, but um, I'm, I'm just not in the same space that I was there. We never know where our life is going to take us. I guess just to bring it fast forward, I ended up, my husband and I both went to grad school. We lived actually in China for a time and then in Colorado, both went to grad school in Colorado. I went, obviously got my master's in counseling and then our lives brought us back to Rexburg. We had graduated from BYU-Idaho, um, moved to Colorado, finished there, and then came back. And he actually got an, a job on campus in the admissions department. And we will definitely have to bring him on to chat about that in the future. Yes. Yay. He's awesome. I'm such a big fan. So I think you would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, we had, I think, two and a half kids. I can't remember if I was, maybe we had three kids. We have four kids now. And so I was mostly staying at home, but I had graduated. Two and a half? Is there like a fraction of a child? I was trying to remember if I was pregnant or not. Okay. <laughs> you know, if they're like halfway grown. I don't think I was pregnant. <laughs> so um, lived in Rexburg for about a year until I decided, okay, I want to start working on my hours to get licensed in the state of Idaho. So I had graduated, but each state has their own, you know, regulations as far as licensing and hours. And so I really fortunately got set up to work on campus um, and do my internship hours. Well, it kind of was, it was not really internship hours, but to start gathering hours to get licensed in Idaho at the counseling center at BYU, Idaho. And so that's where I started. And I just kind of stayed there and ended up becoming after a couple of years, I was already licensed. And so they hired me on as a part-time, a part-time counselor. And, um, really the difference was like, all, they have a lot of full-time people there. Um, and they get a wait list really fast. And so they bring on part-time people to start taking on that wait list. And so I would have a, a relatively full caseload once that, once they were ready to bring me on each semester, they would wait for the wait list to get started. And then they'd pull on the part-time people. You were signing like a six month contract or like a one semester contract every time, or how was that? For a while, I was an independent contractor, 
Um, and then they actually did hire us officially as employees, but that was, I mean, it was kind of just variable based on when they needed us to come in. And at that time it was, it worked for me because I was mostly home. And then when we were ready or they were ready to bring me back on, like, you know, we would kind of organize the family in that way and, and bring on the nannies. And then I'd just work whatever days I would want to work. And then after the semester, and then there was like a gap in between each semester as far as when they would bring us back on. But that worked well for me because I wasn't ready to go full time. And so it was like I got a lot of good experience, um, worked obviously with college age students, which I love and I still love. Like it's such a fun demographic. And all of them were, I guess I shouldn't say all, but they seemingly were all very active LDS people. Well, at least they have to present themselves that way. Yes. Yes. So that they can get the endorsements. And really most of them were. And it was at that time really freeing to be able to work within the counseling context, but then bring in spiritual things as it seemed relevant. It's definitely not something I would jump to. And that is something, unfortunately, that I have seen done poorly in the field that, you know, when you're in a really highly populated area like like Rexburg or some places where there's a, a lot of LDS population, they just kind of lead from that lens in, in the therapy office. And that may or may not always fit the client. So, and not, not everyone does that, but I have seen that in some places and that's who, you know, as a, as a professional, you're like, Oh, that's so unethical. You can't do that. Um, for some, it worked really great though. Like they would lead with that and we'd be able to utilize those kind of concepts as part of their, their therapeutic healing process, which I loved. I really enjoyed that. So what years did you work for uh, uh, BYU-Idaho in the counseling department? So it was, um, I think, like March of 2013. And then and then there was a little bit like COVID hit and I didn't work for a little bit. And then they brought me on for one more semester. So that would have been the end of 2019. Working remotely or they brought you back in the office to meet with clients in person? It was working remotely. Yeah. So, um, but... But that summer of COVID, they didn't need me because there was such a huge change in the population of students. A lot of people were home. And so the counseling center was slower. So they brought me in for one more semester. But I was also, I had started my private practice at then. So they overlapped a little bit. Was there a conflict of interest? I guess I don't understand. No, it was basically just working two places. So I would be doing my private hours during whatever days and times I set. And then I committed to them whatever hours they could fill my calendar. And so I did both. It was, <laughs> it was a conflict of heart though, because at that point I was pretty, I was pretty heavily deconstructing, even though I don't know if I knew as cognitively how much I had deconstructed at that point, but that also supported my, my choice to like, okay, I'm just going to go private. And that was better. It was better and needed for me. That's been my experience reflecting on my own deconstruction is the harder I think about the way my mind was operating at different times in my life, I recognized that I was already deconstructing much earlier than what I, what I had originally thought. Oh, yeah. You start your religious deconstruction while working there in the BYUI counseling department, maybe not fully aware of it. Did that lead to your exit or your departure from working with them? Or was it just because you had started your own practice that you decided to focus on, on building your own business? 
Um, yes. And <laughs> like, <Okay>. there's <laughs> so many things that I think contributed it to me, but if I'm being honest with myself, it's like, yeah, it definitely started in the counseling work. And because, I mean, this was, I feel like the birthplace of, of, you know, they say building shelves that I was starting to shelf things, man, I had a beautifully built like bookshelf. <laughs> like it wasn't just one little shelf. Like there was so much and it was organized and it was, you know, like it was reinforced. It was drilled into the studs in the wall. Yes, totally. Drywall screws and everything. <laughs> because a lot of where I started to shift was where I saw all the shame. There's shame just being, I feel like it's an epidemic in LDS culture. And at first I thought it was culture, but then over time I realized, ooh, it sources from doctrine. And that was really hard for me to kind of um, differentiate. And sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes I had found a really good place of like, okay, I believe all this and I don't believe that. And I can live in both places. It's just the longevity there was not for me. <laughs> That's a tough place to exist in. Yeah. I mean, and I had a front row seat and I still do. I think uh, a front row seat in so much suffering um, that I could see as a systemic problem. I didn't see it first, but over years I could see as a systemic problem of like, this doesn't actually have to exist. This type, this shame is contributing to mental health issues, which don't have to come. <laughs> you know, they, that, that, that is coming from a place that is not intending to create that, but it, very much is. And so, and then at its worst, you know, it's pushing people towards suicide completion. That's not, I would say, like, I'm not wanting to make a blanket statement that like, that happens often, or that's just one cause. But shame definitely contributes to a lot of that suffering. I guess we should throw a, maybe a content warning that some of the things that we're going to discuss will probably be heavy. So if there's a listener that this might be triggering to, take it easy, pause, come back when you're feeling better, that sort of thing. Take care of yourself first. Thank you. Yes. So I think this would be a, good, a great segue into your outline that you sent me. Um, you said that as as you're working with these students, you're get, you got, got very interested in the shame resilience approaches. What do you mean by that? Or what, what are shame resilience approaches and what, and how were you coaching some of the students with those? Yeah, great. Um, shame resilience is kind of a term I made up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> but it's fitting. And I don't know, maybe it exists in other places. Um, I, over this time, and I want to say it was maybe the first or second year that I really started practicing clinical work. I became, I came across Brene Brown's work. And man, if there's anything that resonated with my heart more, I don't know what it is because it was like, I felt like heavens were speaking to me, her work. I mean, and, and if listeners don't know, look her up. She's everywhere. She's very well known. She does a lot of work around shame and empathy and connection. Um, she's written a lot of books. She's friends with Oprah to put it in context. You know, they do things together. So what about Brene Brown's work drew you to her and to become a follower of what she's teaching? Authenticity. That I didn't realize at the time how much of a core value that was for me to show up honestly, to be to be truly and most honestly myself. Um, and that's the cool thing about her work is that not only does she supply a lot of research and information and really cool concepts, she tells you how it shows up in her life <laughs> and she's a relatable person. And so I think honestly, that's the huge part of her success is, is not just the research. It's her. 
She has allowed people to see her as a human, even though she's also highly intellectual and an academic and all of these really impressive things, but it's the human that connects with all of the other humans. And I think at that point, I was really starting to, I was so thirsty for more vulnerability. And that's not something that shows up a whole lot. At least in my experience, there is a lot of vulnerability, but sometimes it's like, I can only be vulnerable in this way. <laughs> like an example would be, okay, testimony meeting, and I can only talk about t- past transgressions. And that's the only kind of vulnerability I can show or that I love my kids or that I love God and I love others, you know, versus like really show that I'm a human that's still struggling and this is how I'm struggling. And like, I was just so hungry for that. So that showed up a lot um, for me in just my own life, like resonated with me. And I started to bring that into my work as far as exploring that with clients and defining the difference between guilt and shame. And um, a lot of her concepts about shame resiliency that allows people to to move through it, as well as other great therapy concepts too. Like I wasn't isolated to just her work, but it was so, it was so relevant to like give people language of like what was showing up for them emotionally. So, so I kind of just went all in and it's, it was one of those concepts and I'm, (laughs) I actually don't know what this term is, but you know, when you learn about something and you see it everywhere else in your life, that, that, that was happening to me everywhere. Yeah. The, uh, I don't know the term that you're referring to either, but I've heard it described as cars is the, the minute you buy a new, like maker model of car, you will suddenly start seeing that, that exact car everywhere on the road. But the amount that it was showing up hasn't changed. You're just more aware of it. It's always been there. It's the same thing when you're pregnant. The first time you're pregnant, oh my gosh, all these people are pregnant everywhere. And I had no idea. They're all just now getting pregnant because I've never noticed them. (laughs) And that's not a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) So it was similar to that. But then that also perpetuated my energy into it, that it was like, oh, this is really important and this is helping people. And so it was giving me more motivation to learn more and practice more. And yeah, it was pretty, it was good synergy. you're starting to draw some parallels between like the shame and the guilt that you're learning about from Brene Brown's work. And you're observing that in these clients that you're working with. How was that um, expressing itself to you? So clients would come in and, you know, they have whatever kind of presenting concern, you know, I feel really anxious and feeling really stressed and feeling really depressed. And we're going over those symptoms. Um, But then I add in the magical question of like, how do you feel about you? Um, that shifts everything, you know, that takes a whole new, a new, whole new conversation. Um, and I would ask them, and I still do this, like, okay, I want you to imagine you, okay, Scott, there, there's another Scott, it's you, but he's sitting next to you. Like, how do you feel about him? Do you like him? Do you not like him? How do you talk to him? Do you guys get along? Do you criticize him? You know, and, and give them that separation to really dissect and understand what that relationship's like. Because when shame is there, I mean, and this is not isolated. I'm far more of a trauma-focused therapist now. (laughs) And shame shows up with trauma too. And so it's not, I think shame isn't the reason for everything. But if there is a lot of shame showing up, there's going to be anxiety and depression too. Like those are secondary symptoms to a different source. Um, and And so it would give me a lot of um good pathways of like where we can do some work and where we can learn better self-love and self-compassion and process through and 
and why why do you feel like you're not good enough or or in what way are you not because shame says okay um we're not blank enough and we fill in that blank with whatever is relevant i'm not smart enough or i'm not righteous enough or i'm not successful enough and then again that gives more um context of like where we can focus into why that shows up so i've got a question and and this might be more um big picture stuff and you may or may not have access to the information that i'm talking about but we'll we'll get there so you're working there in the counseling department you're seeing students regularly um first off what was your average caseload in like a semester how many different students would you be working with and then um how many different students would your department as a whole be working with of the population of the of the school i guess what i'm trying to get at is how many of the like what percentage of the student population would be experiencing these things or would need to go to therapy to add to that answer that's only those that are actually seeking out therapy <laughs> there's definitely people that benefit and maybe even are open to it but again whether it's shame or anxiety or something else there's a lot of limitations that actually don't even allow people to get into the office so I'll take some guesses. I don't have the actual stats, but I can I can give you some numbers that I know to give you some more context. For, so for me personally, and I was part-time. So when I would come on, it was anywhere from 10 to like 20 clients a week, I would see. And for therapists, like I know some that will maybe do 30, 30 plus clients in a week. That's a really big load. <laughs> um, right now, professionally, 20 is... That's like six a day. That's a, that's a lot of, that's, seeing, yeah. that's working with a lot of people in a day. Yeah. And some people will be like, oh, well, that's not 40 hour week, work week, but the emotional toll that requires to be shown up in every single session, it, it it's plenty of a full-time week. <laughs> so that's well over because even if you say half hour prep for each person time slot, you know, if you do an hour session, half hour prep for each individual, that's well over full-time. And even if you're not prepping, it's, it, it's, you know, there can be a subtle wear and a subtle tire fatigue that can show up just from the type of work that is required. So I'd be between 10 and 20. I mean, at one point I had another baby, so I went way down. I think I was seeing three clients one semester, but, um, and then, and that's for like three to four months is what the semester was. However, full-time they're usually, I, and they're, maybe even listeners that know more of this, but I know they were encouraged to have around 20 to 25 in their caseload. And there was 15 plus full-time therapists and, and they would be working the entire semester except for the breaks. And so however those numbers add up, I'm not good at math. So lots and lots and, and not everyone would even get in because um, there was sometimes like the office, manager. She was an incredible person. I just loved her. Um, I'd be like, okay, where's the wait list at? And two to three weeks in, it's already at like a hundred students. They weren't even serving everyone. They maybe wanted to as quickly as they could. Now, would most of these students be like a one-time visit and then they don't come back anymore? Or are you developing like long relationships with these students over the course of the semester? It kind of would depend. Um, they actually, over my time there, they developed a new policy that you could only see one client for two semesters in a row. Um, cause they, they were trying to, and I really understand this cause you know, if they've got this massive, um, load of clients and they're trying to serve it, they were trying to create more brief therapy options, which brief therapy is just as it's described. It's, it's, it's not supposed to be long-term therapy. 
So, so there was a turnover every semester or every two semesters in a lot of people's calendars. Now that I'm in private work, it's, it's definitely not the same. I stay with people until they, they feel like they're done <laughs> or if I feel like they're done and we're having those conversations. But I mean, it's more years now when people are in private work. I just kind of wanted to get a better idea of, of how that, that relationship worked because we're not going to focus too much on that. I feel like it's pretty informative because counseling on, on campus is free, which eliminates a financial barrier, which does keep people out of those services. And there's a huge need. <laughs> and whether that's isolated to the LDS population or not, you know, there, we can be general, like there's a huge mental health need. Um, and, and it's needing to be serviced and maybe be serviced better <laughs> than it is. Whether that's, yeah, again, an LDS thing or just in general, like we need to do better with mental health services. Were there any pros and cons or were there any things that you struggled with or maybe that were easier working for a large institution like BYU-Idaho? Um, the easy thing was like, I could kind of pick my schedule. That was very nice. Like I had the flexibility of that. Um, I felt very lonely because I really went in and did my sessions and left. So I didn't get as much coworker interaction. Um, and over time I found some struggles showing up on like how I felt like I could practice therapy. So like with sexuality, for example, I was working a ton with lots of individuals with, okay, you guys can't see, but air quotes, supposed sex addiction. <laughs> Because clinically, not everyone agrees that that's, a, that's a, an addiction. And so that's why I'm putting air quotes. But people would come in and this would be their presenting concern. And so we're talking a lot about this, the sexual experiences and, and masturbation and pornography and a lot of that stuff. And I was noticing the way that I was addressing it, wasn't working it and trying other ways to address it. But then also feeling like, I don't know if I can talk to my colleagues about this because I kind of think masturbation's healthy. And I you know, it wasn't overtly discouraged because I maybe didn't have those interactions, but there was like a, I don't, I'm practicing. And I know I don't think I was practicing in any unethical way, but I was trying to approach things with, with empirically supported approaches. <laughs> and, and then yet feeling like, oh, wow, I don't know how everyone else in the office would feel about this because of all the religious ideas. And you did your graduate work not at BYU or not in a church school. So your your training would have been vastly different from what the school's approach would be in these specific areas. Well, and I actually would hope not, <laughs> but but possibly because you're right. I, I went to school in Colorado, so I got, but because therapy training should not be religiously influenced, you know, it, it should be more organic. So I can't really speak to what a program at BYU would be like, but I would hope that they would encourage people to not look at every client through any type of religious lens. Um, again, they could utilize that as tools if the client feels like that is important to them, but it's really unethical actually to, to lead through religion. <laughs> The reason I asked that question is because just moments before, as you said, you felt like you couldn't talk to your colleagues about the way you were helping these students. Yes. Yeah. So, so therein lies the issue because everyone on campus was a member. And so you get this cross-section of profession and religion or values or, you know, whatever people are calling those that it's like, oh, they maybe wouldn't even allow themselves as a professional to explore different ways to approach an issue if it was in conflict with their own personal 
values. And yet that might create a limiting treatment approach for any given client. And, and there was a variation. You know, I really appreciated the people I worked with on campus. And I feel like the counseling center was definitely far more open and progressive than a lot of the other departments on campus, which is good because they needed to be, you know, you have to be open in order to be good at therapy. But there were still some limitations. Like I had heard of some colleagues that, and this was, okay, this was not a first, well, it was kind of a firsthand account, you know, that I had heard there were some that wouldn't work with LGBTQ clients that were actively in relationships. So they would be refusing services to people that needed services. Would they refer them to other people or was it just a cold no? Yeah, I think so. And so each each professional probably would just make their own decision about that, of what they felt comfortable and not comfortable. And really, you know, if there's some uh, strong personal conflicts, it is good ethics to try to pass on a client. That was going to be my follow-up question. Is this something yeah. that you would see in the professional world outside of a religious context? Yeah. So like if I had a significant trauma and then I have a client that's bringing up too much of my own stuff, it's probably good to pass them on because I may be not in a good place to to objectively help them. Okay. The issue is, at least with the LGBTQ stuff, that I, I don't know, I felt like it was different. Like it was it was bringing up these conflicts in me of like, oh, I can't say I can't work with them because because of the choices they're making, people are making all sorts of choices and they still need services, right? We touched on a couple of things in this outline. Yeah, sorry. I'm bouncing all around, Scott. It's hard for me to stay on point. <laughs> no, it's it's been great. <laughs> so let's jump back a little bit to your experience. You're working there in BYU-Idaho counseling and you're noticing some of these things around shame, around sexuality, around you maybe quote unquote pornography addiction or sex addiction, if you will. Did you make a correlation between the teachings of the church and these problems as they're surfacing? No, I was totally making connections. And if anything, I was starting to, <laughs> in, in the most respectful way, kind of like make some noise about it, <laughs> at least in my small circles, because I was realizing, and when we're talking about sexuality, I want to say just in general, like sexual development and sexual health. This, this includes like how we feel about our bodies and our own sexual impulses, as well as how we feel about sexual behavior and sex outside of marriage or inside of marriage or any of those, like just sexuality as a whole that I was noticing because LDS culture comes at a very abstinence base um, approach. And when I say abstinence, I don't necessarily mean from sex. I mean, from sexuality, <laughs> just don't think about it. Don't think about any of it. Don't talk about it. Like, let's shut it down. And that wasn't working because what it was causing and what continues to happen is when there is no healthy relationship with something that is biological, it can contribute to a lot of compulsive disorders because there's no place to figure it out or to, to be more conscious and intentional about our choices. And so, and there's a huge, instead of using sexual addiction, I use the term that's actually coined by Doug Bon Harvey, who does a lot of work around um, out of control sexual behavior, because that can be a whole lot of things. Um, and, and that feels better. Addiction is often a lot well, I won't even get into that, but there, there's reasons. Even with that terminology, there's an implication that there is in-control sexual behavior, and then it would be defining you know, where on that sort of spectrum an action lies. Yeah, because it can't be disputed that some 
times people are wanting to decrease behavior, um, whether it's looking at sexual imagery, because I also don't say porn, like what is porn? <laughs> like People aren't always looking at, you know, really hardcore stuff, but it's a sexual imagery that is arousing, you know, whether they're doing that or whether they're masturbating, that they're, they, they want to decrease the behavior and that um, it's hard and, and, and they're trying things and it's not working. The problem though, isn't in the just decrease the behavior and think about it less and cope in different ways because they haven't learned how to really create a healthy relationship with their own sexuality. They haven't been able to enter into sexuality with a value-based intention and be able to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. Um, and we'll probably get more into this as we, like there's, there's far more when it comes to sexuality and purity culture, but um, yeah, I was definitely starting to be like, this isn't working. <laughs> we need to talk about these things more. We need to normalize how our bodies feel. We need to normalize even the desires and the ideas and thoughts that pop up. We maybe even need to normalize some sexual behavior that allows people like, I mean, and I'm not being shy listeners, but <laughs> masturbation can be a self-soothing thing. You know, it can induce labor. It can be a great stress relief. <laughs> and there's research that supports that. Uh, but of course, I was, I was thinking these things, but I wasn't maybe as directly saying them out loud because I was afraid too. Like, oh my gosh, I can't tell someone that I'm pro-masturbation because <laughs> then I'll be like damned <laughs> you know <laughs> you did say that you were rocking the boat a little bit what did that look like and what were you what boundaries were you pushing and how did you decide which boundaries to push <laughs> so in settings where maybe it was coming up at church or in my own circles and i again this whole process i'm trying to be as authentic as i can but respectful because at the time you're still a believer in the church active participating yes super believer, but I'm trying to pay attention to what I feel like is true. And and I'm in this conflict of, I do not feel like the way we are addressing sexuality is true or good or right. So when that would come up, I would say things. Um, I try to do it respectfully, but but bring in more insight. And I wasn't as, as brave to be like, no, masturbation's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say things like, we really need to talk about sexuality more. And we need to, you know, even as simple as with our kids, we need to use the words for their body parts instead of make up silly names. We need to be comfortable. We need to be more open with ourselves and with our partners. And sometimes I maybe would get more specific. <laughs> There's an experience. I was in the young woman's presidency and so had to go to a lot of, I, well, I was actually at ward council in the mornings and I would come home and my husband would be like, okay, what'd you say today? <laughs> like, <laughs> what'd you say to rock the boat? And there wasn't these horribly outlandish things, but I felt like this kind of lone ranger with these new ideas that I knew were helpful. And, and yet I was seeing the way things were taught, especially at church through the way either the doctrine was or the lessons would go or just people would interact and I could see how that was harmful and that would trigger a lot of shame. And so I would try to speak to that and I would try to call people lovingly out on like, we need to do this differently or we can't say things that way or you need to understand like to not just assume a person's happy because they look like they're happy. I don't know. Just providing a lot of more insight to the real stories of people because we don't know. <laughs> we really don't know what people are going through. So yeah, those small ways. 
was there a specific doctrine or a specific thing that people were saying maybe that was recurring that you felt like you were standing up against regularly? If you can't remember one, then that's okay. But I'm just trying to kind of get, get an idea for the listeners of what sorts of things you were saying. Hey, this is a firm no. Anything that was um, somewhat of a shaming language. So if I'm trying to think of like specifics, if it was like anything, if like, don't do that and you're not good enough, woo, I would jump in and sweep in really fast. Like value is not something we earn. It just exists. Any type of language. Um, and it was hard because that shows up in so much of the doctrine. There's a lot of black and white and right and wrong. And I have worked so, with so many clients that, that struggle with like scrupulosity, which for listeners, it's, it's kind of a form of OCD around worthiness and about being righteous and good enough. And so individuals like that take the right and wrong and they like amplify it. <laughs> that, and so every little thing that's right and wrong is going to make them feel a whole lot more anxiety and distress than someone that doesn't suffer with scrupulosity, but they're taking it from the context of any church do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. So I would swoop in on things like that a lot. And then things around sexuality, like, you know, if, <laughs> ooh, uh, something that I'd hear and sometimes still do hear of like um, talking to the young women, like if you ever date someone that has a pornography problem, you don't even look at him twice. Oh, that would just kill me. Cause it's like, well, if that's the case, your sons are not going to date anyone <laughs> or your daughters because it's not isolated to just the boys. Like you might be telling your daughter that and she actually is struggling. And I use struggle in quotations because it's not something she had to struggle with. But like, and how shaming is that when they're hearing this? I can't date someone, but then maybe that's also me. And like, I just must be really worthless then. Well, all the kids sitting in the room that, would, that are participating in that behavior, like how does that make them feel? And how do they internalize those ideas? And then it actually sometimes perpetuates some of those out of control behaviors. I feel shame. I feel worthless. And then I engage in maybe masturbation and porn because it gives me a great <laughs> sense of chemistry in my body. You know, an orgasm really feels good. And it's a very nice short term, you know, coping method. But then right after that happens, in swoops the shame again, because I did what I wasn't supposed to. So now I'm worthless and I'm feeling depressed and, and it can just perpetuate that cycle more and more. As you're presenting some of these ideas, how aware are you that they are unorthodox and could potentially maybe flag you as, as a member of the ward that, that is on the outside of the in-group, if you will? I think I was pretty aware. Um, and yet I was also aware that it was better. <laughs> so it's like, I'm coming from this professional perspective of, okay, these things aren't working and they're hurting people. And I can see it. I see it every single day. And these approaches maybe are better. And not that those approaches are inherently in contrast. So I feel like I was, I was aware, but then I was also motivated by something I felt like was very true. Um, and so it was worth it was worth it to the level that I would push it. <laughs> and for a time I'd tease the line, but I wouldn't go too far so that I could still maintain, um, you know, good standing as well as my own rational, um, you know, my own mental gymnastics around doctrine. Cause I was still trying to make it work. You're aware that your ideas are maybe unorthodox. How did that impact your ability to treat clients or help clients as they're coming to you? And you're aware that your ideas 
don't line up with what they're going to be learning in church or even because they're, they're at BYU Idaho, there's different ideas than what they're going to be presented in their religious courses and everywhere else during their time as a student? Um, I got a couple answers to that. The first one would be, and this has been a beautiful, I think, gift that I have had that when I just enter into the therapy session, I feel like everything else is kind of irrelevant. Like I'm just there with that client and I'm really trying to use my own clinical like judgment and intuition about what is best for that client and how to delicately um, help them in certain things. Because if I'm working with someone that's super orthodox and in, I'm not actually going to be pushing some of these ideas too much because I know that that's not something they're open to. So I'm, I'm utilizing my own judgment to be able to know at what point um, to challenge certain things or at what point to also balance them out with other things that are beautiful and good and do exist in the church. Because my second answer to that question would be, and this was an interesting ride, um, so much of the concepts of like the shame and guilt, I feel like resonated a lot with certain LDS doctrine. And I was doing my own work and I actually started to write a book <laughs> that I've published since, but it has morphed because it also expanded my deconstruction. But that was the whole birth of it. it was like okay, these good mental health concepts about shame and guilt are reflected in a lot of good gospel stuff about loving ourselves and being kinder and, and not, you know, the godly sorrow is versus the worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is more guilt and worldly sorrow is more shame. And so that was a, a really useful way for me to be like, oh, we can utilize this. And if that works for you in the therapy office, that was a really good um, avenue of healing too. For a listener that might be unfamiliar with how you're using those terms, what would you say is the difference between guilt and shame? Because you, you use them as a one with a good connotation and one with a bad yes. connotation. So I just yeah. kind of want to make it explicit for the listener. Yeah, I'll give you my little spiel. So guilt and shame, <laughs> this is something I'm sure I have clients who are like, oh, I've heard her say this several times. <laughs> but guilt and shame are different. We use them interchangeably. And in whether it's religious language or other things, we often can hear those as a similarly used verb. So guilt is something that, that arises, like say, for example, so I flunked a test and I'm feeling pretty rotten about it, but instead of feeling shame, I'm feeling guilt and guilt can help propel a person forward, help them kind of learn from the situation. It still feels cruddy. Like let's acknowledge guilt does not feel good, but it is a discomfort that propels people forward to learn and grow. So I may be talking to my professor or I'm kind of calling myself out because I actually didn't study or I got in a fight with my boyfriend and that kind of threw me into a weird place and I'm learning about it so I can have a better experience next time I take a test. So that's guilt. Shame is not the same thing because instead of feeling curious and wanting to learn, I feel like I'm stupid. I feel like I'm going to fail. I feel like I'm going to drop out of school. My professor is going to be mad at me. And the brain can spiral into all of these really unhealthy places that don't promote any type of growth. If anything, it's regressive or definitely stagnant. And it's a very compelling truth. that's actually a lie, but a truth that I'm not good enough for whatever reason. And, and when shame shows up, it also creates all sorts of behaviors that we're, we are utilizing to try to navigate the shame. And those are not healthy behaviors either. It's, but yet that's, that's how we're kind of trying to survive it. So guilt is I did something bad or something bad happened. Shame is I am something bad. It's about identity. Thank you for clarifying. 
yeah, no, that was useful. Um, many of the clients that are coming in, these students are expressing shame about whatever aspect of their life that they feel like they're falling short in. And you're noticing that with every client, with most clients, is that something that's like prevalent with just about everybody that you saw? Yes, actually. There's there's some exceptions. I've worked with some people that are neurodivergent and maybe on the spectrum. They sometimes don't struggle with shame as much, which is great for them. Like, yay. <laughs> so that wasn't a barrier. But yeah, most clients, I would say. Um, and there isn't, like the way I was approaching it, it was through a lens of, of kind of shame resiliency. So a lot of therapists will have different lenses and they're kind of treating so many similarly with, with that approach. So I think I was somewhat biased to, to always be looking for those things and, and discussing those things. Not that that was unhealthy treatment, but that, you know, the questions I asked, I'd be asking those questions and other people maybe are focusing more in the anxiety symptoms or the depression and, and utilizing different ways to kind of process that. You've worked here for six years, seven years now. What was the reason that you did eventually leave? You said that you started your own private practice, which um, I don't remember if we said the name, which is Greenstone Counseling for any of the listeners out there. You've started your own private practice. What was kind of leading up to your decision to start your own private practice? COVID was part of it. COVID has a lovely part in many of our life stories. And so it has a part in mind <laughs> that when I was on campus and COVID hit, the part-time therapists didn't have work essentially because there was so much change that a lot of the students were going home and they were not seeking the therapy services. So I had a whole semester of no work. And at that point, I was getting ready. Like me and my family had always known that I wanted to go full-time at a certain point. It was just kind of timing. And the timing was approaching. You were waiting for your kids to maybe get older, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I was really ready, not only for that um, timing, but I, I felt like professionally and personally, I was ready to up my game. I was ready to work more and kind of get better. So, and, and yet at that same time, I have zero work. <laughs> at the end of that semester, there was a new position, a full-time position coming up at the counseling center that I would still have to apply for because I was only considered part-time. And so it felt like good timing. Okay, I'll apply for this because the full-time counselors were still working. They were just doing it virtually, but they still were all there and had their jobs. And yet going into it, I was, I, I was probably, I'd say maybe three quarters through my deconstruction, even though I was like, okay, let's go do this and I'll apply for this job. There was a very small voice in the back of my head being like, I don't know if I want to work there. Like, I don't know if it's good for me personally or professionally to work on campus anymore. But yet, it still felt like the right thing to do. So I interviewed and it went great. And I didn't get the job. I was the second in line. And I had a lot of mixed feelings about that. Like the interviewers are great. And really the people at the counseling center, I have a lot of esteem for like wonderful colleagues. But yet, I, I couldn't help but feel like there were some things that were part of, I would say, LDS culture that were working against me. I didn't get the job because I didn't have as much experience. Well, I didn't have as much experience <laughs> because after I graduated, I was following the mold of having children and being a stay-at-home mom. If I had gone straight into clinical work when I graduated, I would have had easily 8 to 10 years more experience. And so that was somewhat counting against me when I was trying to be doing, at least from this cultural expectation, this religious expectation, I was trying to do what was supposed to happen. 
And if, you know, say, if, for example, it was a mission, they wouldn't have counted someone going on a mission against their years of experience. You know, there's no way they would do that. And no one goes on a mission for 10 years, but it was a, it was a, a family mission that I was on. And so that felt like a really unfortunate thing that also wasn't really acknowledged, but I still was able to practice part-time doing the exact same job. They kept me on part-time, but they didn't want me to be full-time. And I think also part of that was maybe like, oh, they knew Erica was going to stick around. She'll get the next one, <laughs> you know, because she's just always going to be around reliable Erica. So a question is popping up as we're, as we're discussing this and sorry to interject real quick, but yeah. what was the demographic within your department? Was it mostly men, mostly women, a good mix of both within the counseling department? So it was highly unique, I would say, for the counseling profession at, at large. It's usually pretty female dominant. Um, not on campus. It, I, I mean, and I'm just guessing at these percentages, but I would say the female is less than 5% or 5 to 6% of the whole. It's, it's far more male. And that was another thing. And honestly, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to throw shade, which is funny that I'm even saying that. The purpose of my asking is not to disparage the institution or anything. I was simply curious. But the position I was applying for was kind of more of a male position. <laughs> you know, they they would replace somewhat in line of who what the gender was. You know, if a male retired, they wanted a male or if a female retired. So so there wasn't that was was not explicitly, but I think subtly working against me too. Because they kind of wanted a man. If I I'm gonna rest I'm gonna restate it to make sure I'm understanding well. The overall demographic and we'll say maybe nationwide is a predominantly female driven field. But within BYU, it's the other way around. I mean, and that makes sense. And there's a lot of contributing factors. It's going yeah. to be, you know, men in an LDS family are going to be the the typical providers. And so there's there's some context in there that 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 does make sense. But it's just interesting. But it also works against for females because if I'm not seen as the breadwinner, if that's something that's going into decisions, then that's not really a fair equal hiring process. And and so I decided to go into private work. Like there's been short of it that I was kind of thrust into the idea of like, maybe I should consider private work, which was not on my radar at all, but it has been a lot better. And I've had the freedom to actually flourish more, I think, as a therapist. I think that's fantastic that it's been beneficial for you. Yeah. This has been a great chat. I want to bring you on because there's so much more that we want to discuss. Before we wrap up, were there any um, last thoughts or maybe any um, overall feelings from this chat or something that you want to clarify or maybe hit home a little bit more? And then also, if you want to plug your practice, Greenstone Counseling, feel free to say whatever you'd like about it. Awesome. Thanks. I think I would just say, and this is a really simple thing that you've actually echoed in some of your episodes, that if anyone really feels alone and they feel overwhelmed and, and they feel that shame that they're not good enough, there is really good people that can help you with that. Like, I, I feel like working against that stigma against mental health and reaching out for help and reaching out for those services, like it, it can make a really great difference. Even if you're not suicidal or things are that severe. I mean, I see a therapist. It's, it's good practice and good for, I say, all people at some point in their life. 
And so again, it can help to work through a lot of that heaviness that creates so much emotional distress. So, I mean, that's kind of a classic therapist plug <laughs> for <laughs> therapy, but it's not because I want clients. It's because I want healing for humans. I really feel strongly about that. And then for my practice, if anyone, we actually have a therapist in Pocatello as well, and we're hoping to hire more um, in Rexburg area or Pocatello, Idaho area. If anyone is in need of services, we actually have started to do a lot of work around post-Mormon or at least deconstruction or um, mixed faith couples. We work, you know, we've got several clients that are in that situation. I wouldn't say we specialize, but we, we wouldn't mind to. <laughs> and a lot of LGBTQ. Um, work too. We love to work with those demographics. Those are somewhat of the outliers of these communities. And so we want to have a reputation to create a safe space for them. Well, both of these cities that you mentioned, Rexburg and Pocatello, are there's a, a large LDS population in both of these cities. Yes, yes. I think Rexburg, it's like 96% or something like it's that. Just it's just wild. It, it's crazy. But then one last plug is we're also looking to hire. If there's anyone in the area of Pocatello or Rexburg that is li a licensed clinical therapist. There's lots of different degrees that kind of qualify for that um, to give us a shout out because we would love to get some more good, good professionals. How should they reach out to you? It's Greenstone Counseling and where can they find you? Greenstonecounseling.com or greenstonecounseling at gmail.com is our email. So any interest, you can email us there or check out our website. It's just all one letter greenstonecounseling.com. And you can find us there. I'm also on Instagram. I think it's Erica Nordfelt Greenstone. I'm not great at social media though. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it's, okay. It's, I try, but it's just not something I like much. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Well, this has been a fantastic chat. I think that the listeners will love some of the, uh, both the aspects that we discussed working for BYU Idaho, but then also kind of just the general feelings around shame and guilt and some of the, just the subjects. I think they're going to resonate with a lot of the listeners. So let's bring you on next week. We'll discuss a little bit more and maybe for a sneak peek for those that uh, will come back, we'll dive a little bit more into sexual shame, trauma, and some of the purity culture. So so that's where we'll go next. And I also, I didn't ask you uh, any specific questions about your religious deconstruction. So we might open next week Okay. <laughs> and I'll, I'll have a couple more questions about that. Thank you so much, Erica, for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Yay, a pleasure for me as well. Thanks so much, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around for the full episode. This was a pleasure to chat with Erica about her time working for BYU-Idaho and also her expertise in the field. She brings an important perspective to the discussion around the LDS faith. I am so excited to jump back into things next week and continue this discussion with her. This has been a real treat, and I'm excited to, to bring the next episode to you guys next week. So for the listeners that, that want to support Erica, you can find her counseling at Greenstone Counseling. But she's also published a book. The book is called Don't Walk Alone, Understanding the Divine Gift of Connection While Navigating Shame. In this book, it talks a lot about the things that we discussed a little bit in this episode. Shame and shame resiliency and some tools for overall mental health and, and fostering better connection. You can find it on Amazon or her, through her publisher, cedarfort.com. So I'll see you next week when we continue this discussion with Erica. Wherever you find yourself out there, just woken up in the middle of the night and 
putting on a podcast to fall back asleep, trying desperately to stay sleepy. I hope you have an excellent evening. Ha, ha, ha.